Hello, and welcome to the Dare to Differentiate podcast. This is Hani, and I'm your host, and very excited for our part three with our very special guest, Devorah Nussbaum, therapist, food therapist, mentor, educator, mother, and many, many other things. We spent some time talking about food, and we're going to continue talking about food from a different perspective. So today we're going to focus more on our relationship with food. And one thing that came up, a lot of people who asked questions, asked questions about fear and about how we interact with food in a fear-based way. I was on my way home to record this and I bumped into a friend and I mentioned to her that one of the things that I wanted to talk about today is fear. And I just mentioned that somebody had asked, how can you face a certain fear as it connects to people who have health conditions, for example, like diabetes or high cholesterol or those kinds of things. So that brings up a lot of fear of what if this is going to hurt me? And she Mm. actually said, oh my gosh, me too. Because she has another like thyroid issue. So those are three really specific examples of ways that medical issue or challenge can stand in the way of having a healthy relationship with food. I think another part of the question is the fear around the actual health issue. So it's a two-part question. Number one is if there are certain foods that are not recommended because of a certain health issue, how can I have a good relationship with food, notwithstanding that? And also, how can I deal with the fear that is related to the actual health condition? I'm moving through that. And I'm wondering if we should start somewhere else, a little less intense, and then come here later. What are your thoughts? Either one is fine. I think what you're asking is a massive question because to answer this question, we have to look at in general, like what is one's relationship to life and health and one's body and in general, what they what they feel about the unknown and vulnerability and things like that. It's a much bigger question than just my relationship with food. And everything is really a much bigger question. To be honest, if someone is feeling afraid of food and what that might impact their body the question is why the fear why the fear and the answer to that question is not it's not a current answer it's my whole history and my whole life experience of how I ever dealt with vulnerability how I ever dealt with experiencing the unknown how I ever dealt with my how I experienced my own body how I experienced living in the world, showing up in the world, all my relationships, how present I'm able to be, how okay I am with connection and vulnerability. This is really the question. It's the ultimate existential question, which is how do I, you know, if you were going to look at life as a spectrum of how am I going to respond to life? And there's two ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, you've got the fear-based response to life, which is I'm protection-focused, I am isolated, but safe. So I am kind of pushing all connection away, but I'm feeling I'm protecting myself. Defended, but disconnected. And in this mode also, I can feel shut down or numb. 
pro of being on this side is the safety. The con is the feelings of isolation, disconnection, fear, anxiety that a person will be living with, attempting to keep myself safe as much as possible. If you are disconnected, you're also safe. You can have safety in a vulnerable, open way. It's not that only safety comes with disconnection. Safety can also be connection, but the pro, one of the pros, one of the reasons why we move towards the fear-based response is because it is like a safety I can control. What I mean by that is that we cannot choose who loves us. We cannot choose who appreciates us. We cannot choose who accepts us. We cannot choose other people's responses to us. We can only choose our responses to life. And therefore, when somebody shows us a loving heart or connects to us in a deep and intimate way, that is it's not something that I can hold on to and put in a bottle and control. So it's a gift and it comes and it goes, just like the sunshine, you know, when the clouds part and the sun shines on your face for a minute and then it's gone. And it can come back again the next minute, but it's not something you can hold on to. You can't grasp it and say, I'm going to now make sure that this is always here all of the time. I have to be able to contain the experience of being fully present and enjoying it while it lasts and also being able to hold space for what that means to me when it's not there to hold a loving space for myself, to be able to allow myself to grieve the fact that I'm not experiencing this now or that I don't have control over my life. My life. One of the main um, things that we all have to, to go through in life if we want to move to this vulnerable open space is grief. We have to grieve all of the things, all the dreams we had about life, all the things we wanted to control. You know, if I wanted to live a life where I didn't have any health issues and now I have a health issue, I need to grieve that. That's a real, that's a real loss. That's a real, and I need to acknowledge that actually, you know, my life isn't going to look the way that I wanted it to, but it doesn't mean it can't look beautiful. It doesn't mean there isn't beauty to be had. It doesn't mean there isn't love and connection and joy all around me if I am open to receiving it. But sometimes if we, if the vulnerability of it, the inconsistency of it, the inability to control it makes us want to not receive it. So we go to this place of, I'd rather not have than to have and lose or to have inconsistently. We try and control our lives. It's a part of our defense mechanism from very early on in our life. This is kind of what we're doing. We're always attempting to have some kind of control over our life. So it starts like this. You're born you're clueless about life and the world and like why people act the way that they do and why sometimes people are kind to you and sometimes they're not and sometimes they're so excited to see you and sometimes they yell at you and sometimes you know everybody loves you and sometimes you feel ignored and like you have no idea why you're like a little innocent vulnerable cuteness what happens let's say when a child comes home from school and they're so excited to show their mother a picture that they drew and then their mother's just on the phone because she's just found out that a family member has passed away and she's devastated and she's crying in the kitchen and the little kid comes into the kitchen to show the mother the picture and the mother's crying and the little kid doesn't know why so they are going to want to fill in the gap to try and understand what's happening so they may make an assumption that like oh my mother's crying because she doesn't like my picture or I'm unimportant my picture's not important or the feeling of helplessness that like, oh no, like my mother's upset. Am I in danger? Anything. I mean, our brains fill in the gap. They're hardwired to do that, to make sense of things. And then 
another thing a child can do is to blame themselves is because I brought a picture home to my mother that she's crying. So I should never bring pictures home ever again. It's another, I mean, so many things. Our brains are amazingly inventive and creative. And our little innocent brains are just trying to develop a formula to figure out life because the unpredictability of life and the vulnerability of life is so overwhelming. And it, depending on how structured and safe and seen the child feels in general, if there's a lot of developmental trauma, they'll feel even more because there's less consistency with the adults. But if there is that level of inconsistency, and even if we are the best parents to our children, our children will also feel a level of inconsistency just because of misunderstandings, miscommunications. We can't always be perfectly there for another human being or know what's in their side, their hearts, and their mind in any given moment. But regardless of that, what happens is, is that we start to create like a little rule book in our mind about what you should and shouldn't do in life to stay safe. And what you should and shouldn't do in life to make sure that good things happen. And so as we develop, those rule books become longer and longer. Like they become more deeply squashed into our subconscious. Like we're not necessarily fully aware of them. If you said to a child, what's your rule book to live by in life? I don't know if they would be able to answer that question. Maybe some kids would hear me, you know. But we've, what happens is, is that those rules we create inside of our mind are originally there to keep us feeling safe because if I know that A plus B equals C then there's some kind of predictability and stability in my life so I'd rather know that A plus B equals C if it's not true <laughs> just live by that rule than to not know anything that just feels way too unsafe so basically what happens is is that as I grow through life a lot of these beliefs are not true they're based on a lot of assumptions and they keep us severely limited so for example, now let's say this child is not going to ever come home with a picture to show it to their mother and they may spend the whole life thinking that my mother doesn't appreciate my creativity or my creativity is dangerous, causes bad things to happen. So I should never paint or draw a picture of her again. So it's like severely limiting and maybe that person has a really beautiful talent for creativity and somehow every time their teacher asks them now to draw something, they say, nah, I don't want to draw and they make up all sorts of excuses and they don't even know why. They just feel scared or a bit uncomfortable around it not necessarily connecting the two events. Mm -hmm. And that can really have a very massive impact on their life. You know, like the old saying goes that our, our conscious mind thinks it's in control. Our subconscious mind doesn't think, but it is in control. So when something is in our subconscious, wow. it is guiding us regardless. We don't think it's guiding us. We just think, oh, I don't like this or whatever. But why do you not like one thing over another? Where did that even come from, you know? And basically, at some point in our life, we spend our childhood spinning our stories. And at some point in our life, we get to a point where we need to start unraveling our stories because we realize that they're more of a hindrance than a help. And all our challenges in life are an opportunity for us to let go of those stories that we spun in our childhood to keep ourselves safe and to start realizing the truth of who we are, which is just expansive, joyful, free, confident, valuable beingness, aliveness. Wow. And I also want to share based on the first conversation we had, a big chunk of the feedback was that it was pretty intense content, but in a way that the way that you share it is very comforting and calming and soothing and the opposite of overwhelming. And it takes a special person to be able to share these ideas 
in a way that's empowering because it's really overwhelming to like, be like, oh my gosh, there's so much unpacking to do. And there's, it's just a lot. And something about the way that you show up in these conversations is it's like, I can do this. You know, it's not something that is too much which is a really incredible gift to the world. So thank you for that. Thank you. And I want to, you mentioned something before about developmental trauma, and mm-hmm. I want you to talk more about that if you can. Okay. So the difference between shock trauma and developmental trauma is really that shock trauma would be like a one-off event that let's say a car accident or an assault of some sort or a fire, you know, something that just takes us out of really the, the question is what is the definition of trauma? Trauma all the mm-hmm. time as we're experiencing life, information is being um, passed through our senses and we're interpreting it in our brain, making sense of it in our brains. If you're walking down the street, you see one paving stone after another, you see a house after another house, a tree after another tree. And basically as you see it, it passes through your mind and then it goes in and out, in and out. Like your experiencing is coming through your senses and then it's moving away and making space for the next thing to come in and move through your senses. Now, when a person experiences trauma, what happens is, is that whatever just came in did not make sense to the programming in your brain. It was like too much, too much, didn't make sense, didn't in line with all of your rules about life. And there was this a shock element to it, a vulnerable element to it, a shame, rejection, humiliation element to it usually, or a life-threatening situation element to it. And what happens is, is that the brain can't process it really. And so that event stays kind of, instead of the information going in and then out, it goes in and it stays stuck in. And that energy just stays there almost like a tornado just circling around itself and around itself and around itself in that part of your brain. What happens then after that is that it creates a certain pattern, anything that's similar that reminds you of the event in any way through any of your senses will trigger an alarm bell to prepare you to try now, it's now creating new beliefs around trying to prepare you to not be so shocked next time to be, you know, prepared for it so that you don't have the shock element. And this is basically what shock trauma is. And developmental trauma is when there, there are basic needs that every human being has in order to feel comfortable inside their own skin and comfortable in the world. I think Shimon Russell says it really well. He talks about the four S's, safe, secure, seen, and soothed. So safety would mean emotional safety. Do you have an adult in your life as a child who you could say anything to without fear of getting into trouble? You know, you smashed the vase. Can you go over to your mother and say, I smashed the vase? Will your mother say to you, you terrible child? Or will your mother say to you, okay, let's get the dustpan and brush and sweep it up together. Let's see how we can prevent this from happening in the future. Let's, let's solve this problem together. Maybe you'll need to earn some pocket money to pay it back. But whatever the case is, I love you, I'm with you. We're gonna, we're gonna work this through. We're gonna learn from this experience. That's emotional safety for a child. But if the parent is in a dysregulated state, so the child then feels like they don't want to, they don't want to tip the, the adult over. They don't want to dysregulate the adult. So I'm more likely to have the smashed bars to lie about it because I'm just so scared of the consequence. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly living on eggshells as a child. That's number one. That's part of developmental trauma. 
if I'm constantly experiencing un emotional unsafety as a child, I might not even know what emotional safety is. I maybe never experienced it, so I don't know that there's anything different. But what's happening is my brain is learning and programming to constantly be on the alert, to look out in case a shock happens. Like if I'm living with temperamental people in my life and they may just start yelling at me or I may get into trouble for something that I didn't intend to do wrong or I, that then I'm on high alert, keeping myself safe. Secure is basically basic security. Like you have a roof over your head, you have food to eat, you've got a school to go to, just basic rhythmic systems in life. That's security. Seen is, is there an adult? Is there someone in your life that literally just sees you and respects you for who you are, sees the goodness in you and draws it out, like completely trusts you and respects you as a human being and appreciates your unique personality? And a lot of times we don't experience that as kids. We just feel a little bit invisible, a little bit unseen or a mm -hmm. lot unseen. We don't even know what it means to be seen or respected by adults because all our experience has been is to be told what to do and how to do it, right? And you get into trouble when you do something wrong and when you do something right, not being seen. So that again, this is an emotional need of a child. If they don't have it met, they might not even know what they're missing, but they're going to feel a sense of uncomfortableness in their own skin. They're going to feel a sense of constriction and they're going to feel a sense of defensiveness, not knowing why. And the last one is soothed. Do we have safe people to go to, to soothe us? Like, you know, something happened in school. I'm really embarrassed. Can I go and cry on my mother's shoulder and tell her like, that was really awful, that experience? Or am I like, no, okay. My mother is not a safe person to talk to about this stuff. I have to just hold it in. I mean, the other option is to take the risk and then be hurt even more. Like take the risk to share whatever it is. So if, if, if we've done that, we yeah. learn or we start to create our rule book, like I was saying earlier, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. It's not the and move. Then, not the move, not the move. So what happens later on in life is that we learn that people are not safe people to go to. If we have, let's say, you know, trauma as, as an adult, we'll feel needy and uncomfortable to go over to someone and say, I just need to cry on your shoulder right now. Please, can you be there to emotionally support me? We're going to be afraid of rejection. We're going to be afraid of humiliation. We're going to be afraid of somebody mocking us because that was our childhood experience. So even as adults, we're going to find it hard to reach out for, for, for connection and soothing. And again, this is all basically how the brain develops with trauma. So this is what trauma is. Developmental trauma, shock trauma. Some people have experienced a combination of both, mm -hmm. but everybody's experienced some form or another. And it's had some form of an impact on our mind. Some people, most of our, our functioning, we're living from a space of trauma. And some people, it's just when we get triggered occasionally. Trigger just means that an event happens that reminds us of, of the original trauma. And then we become oh, high alert and defensive in that moment. But when the moment passes, we can go back to feeling regulated, which means calm and be able to see other perspectives, to be able to think and choose how I want to respond to this rather than instinctively reacting to it, not having to be defensive, but more interested and listening and collaborative. You don't have to, you know, I'm not, I'm not in trouble. Like I can, I can take the time to listen to what you have to say. Don't have to make a right or a wrong person here. Like who says there's anyone to blame? It's just, oh, your perspective, my perspective, it's fine. You know, that, that would be a regulated state where I can engage and I can connect and I can become self-aware and reflective. Whereas a dysregulated state is that basically I have to just defend myself. I have to protect myself because I feel attacked. Mm -hmm. So 
why were we talking about this again? We were talking about, oh, you wanted to know the difference between shock trauma and developmental trauma. Mm-hmm. So does that answer the question? Yeah, I feel like that kind of brings it back to this idea of the fear that we have around food. And it only yeah. kind of makes sense because if there is this developmental trauma, then it's most likely also connected to food. So mm. maybe food as reward and punishment, or this is terrible mm. for you, or like if that's mm. a normal part of our conversation and our inner dialogue, then of mm. course we'll be afraid. I'm afraid to gain weight. I'm afraid this is going to hurt me. This is terrible. I'm afraid to be seen as weak or afraid of what's going to happen if I change anything in the way that I behave or interact with food. So I feel like this fear is like layered in many ways. And I'm curious if we should talk about facing those fears in general or start unpacking one specific one? What are your thoughts? Well, the thing is, is that, again, it goes back to the general idea Mm -hmm. of if my experience of my body and my experience of feeding my body, there was developmental trauma around that. What that means is that if I grew up, let's say in a house where food was used as a reward or a punishment, let's say you go to bed without dinner, if you get, you know, done something wrong, or when you're a good girl, you get, you know, sweets. If you grow up in a house where there was body image things going on, like in order Mm -hmm. to get love and attention, you had to look a certain way. So the skinny ones were, wow, you look so good. And the chubby ones were not really spoken about, or you were told you have to go on a diet, we shouldn't eat so much or watch what you're eating. And we all have some kind of, and some people more than others, it depends on our family of origin. I just want to point this out because I think it's really important. And I think a lot of people are not seen in this, but you said like, oh, if you're skinny, then you get a certain attention or whatever. And then there are people who are thinner, who don't necessarily have that problem, have a whole other problem with food that is completely unseen. So honestly, I'd love to talk about that but I interrupted you. (laughs) Yeah. The bottom line is that everybody, again, the way that we're interacted with as people, the way that our bodies are interacted with by other people is the way that we will learn to interact with our bodies and nourishing our bodies. Ultimately, all issues that people have with weight is, is just a relationship to my body question. Like how do I view my body? how do I relate to my body? That's the question to ask. And then how do I relate to the idea of nourishing my body and taking care of my body and being kind to my body? All of these questions are so important and they'll give clues to, once the relationship with my body and with nourishing my body is is worked through. So whatever version that is for me, whether it was because I was a chubby kid or I was a skinny kid or I saw you know, people around me who were body obsessed, or I saw people who didn't even acknowledge the bodies. I grew up in a family where no one was touched. I grew up in a family where you didn't speak your feelings or nourishing yourself. It was all about, you know, something external, intelligence, intellect, whatever it is, 
Every family has their own version of this. It's all a question of working through that relationship mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So can we list some of those questions that can be asked? Because you said like what asking you... questions, like what? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do I view my body? How do I view my body? What relationship do I have with my body? It's a good place to start. And then what if I'm afraid to answer that initial question? What if there's fear around engaging in that conversation of like, how do I see my body? Well, honestly, I don't want to know. Or honestly, I... Okay, I would start right there. With <laughs> okay. getting to know, getting to know the part of yourself that doesn't want to know. Mm -hmm. She's the gatekeeper. She's the gatekeeper. She's a real part of you. Move towards her. What what is it about knowing that you don't want? What mm -hmm. what is it about knowing that you don't want? Let's start there. Is there fear around that not wanting, or is it just? I don't um, know. If everyone would be different, right? It's just a matter of getting curious and asking yourself these questions because, you know, if we don't want to know something, I guarantee it's a protection from something. Mm -hmm. If there's a part of your body that's protecting you from knowing more information, it obviously feels like that information is dangerous. I'd be wondering why, what happened to you? Like, mm -hmm. what experiences did you have that made you feel like knowing what relationship you have with your body might be dangerous? And to listen, because if that part of you says, you know, maybe I'm scared that if I know I have to act on it and I don't feel ready to act on it, let's say that's what it says, then you can just say, okay, what if we just did the knowing bit now with no pressure to act? Mm -hmm. What if we were just engaging with curiosity without any expectations of a follow through? Would you be comfortable to explore now? That part of your body might say, okay. Or it might say, no, I'm still scared of something. And you can ask it, what? What else are you afraid of? I'm afraid I might touch upon a grief that's so big that I don't even know how to handle it. Mm -hmm. So you can ask the question, well, how, how far do I need to stand away from this grief in order to be able to feel comfortable seeing it without crumbling? So like, let's say I was standing on one end of the park and this grief was at the other end of the park, would I feel comfortable to see it? And it might say, okay, yeah, from that distance, I can have a look from afar. And you ask the question, what, what happens if I would take one step closer? Would that be okay? And it might say, all right, okay. And then you keep doing that until you find that edge. You find that point where you're comfortable enough, you're close, as close as you can be before becoming uncomfortable. And yet you're comfortable enough to just look at it from that place. That's called finding a window of tolerance. Finding a window of tolerance is really important because if you try and work outside of your window of tolerance, which means that you're facing something that is too overwhelming, too big, you don't want to go there, then you'll just shut down. You're not going to get any insight or information from your body. So it's really just a matter of very slowly and working together with your body, working together with what you're experiencing and supporting it and appreciating it like, if you feel like you are, you are the expert on protecting me, I trust you. You have spent, let's say a person's 25 or 30 or 45 years old, doesn't matter. Let's say you spent the first 45 years of my life keeping me safe. You know exactly how to do it. 
in your own way, even though sometimes it causes me more pain, but like, you don't know another way, but you're doing really well. You have really good intentions. That's the point. Sometimes mm-hmm. screw this up, but it has good intentions. Our body always has good intentions trying to keep us safe. So just acknowledging that, like, if you if you're getting in the way here as an emotional block, you, it must be for a good reason. You must be wanting to keep me safe from something. The question is what? I don't necessarily know what, but I'm going to trust that you have good intentions. Now, once I once I go from that starting point and I respect it, I respect it and I trust it and I work with it. I find I, what I'm already starting to do is to shift my relationship with myself. So I'm not bulldozing over things. I'm not mm-hmm. like, I need to fix this. I'm a problem. I need to fix. I need to fix my relationship with my body. I need to like sort it out. You know, there's an issue with me. <laughs> I'm messed up. No, one second. You start over. There's no fixing here. It's about finding, about finding yourself, not fixing yourself, mm-hmm. finding yourself, understanding yourself. What, what's, what's been going on for me here? And once I find that window of tolerance and I'm able to look at it, I can then start engaging with it. I can then start dialoguing with it. And, you know, slowly, slowly taking time to do it can get to be able to get to a point where I can just look at that grief in the eye. I can hold it while it cries. I can give it permission to be there. I can say, you know, I understand that you must be grieving or whatever it's telling you. I'm grieving a childhood that was safe. I'm grieving a childhood where I was seen. I'm grieving... I'm grieving having the body that got me the approval. I'm grieving not getting the love that I needed. The list goes on. Everyone's grieving something else. Everyone. And just acknowledging that, making space for it. Sitting shiver for it. You know, allowing it space to to cry and, and, and express itself. To thank the protection from keeping you safe all this time. From not being overwhelmed by the intensity of it. And then thinking, well, how do I want to move forward? How am I going to find beauty in the life I do have? How am I going to move into acceptance? And acceptance doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean like, okay, fine, I can't help it. So I'm just going to have to like live with this. No, it means really experiencing life with joy and beauty and vulnerability with whatever is in front of me right now, my full presence in this moment, rather than thinking I need to have a certain thing in order to be dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. First of all, it's so powerful. Oh, I just like, I'm feeling that like relaxing in my body, but this idea that I just distracted myself, I guess my, my protection parts are working hard here. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's great. So interesting. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. They, they, they work, they work hard. You know, your protective parts work so hard. Yeah. They work harder than than any other part of your body, and they work twenty four seven. They never give you. They never stop. They never go on holiday. They never have a coffee break. They're no. real, full on, devoted guards standing at your door. They yeah. they appreciate. They need some appreciation. They need like, some appreciation. So thank you, thank you, protectors. They care about you and keeping you safe more than you could possibly like imagine. You know, like yeah. Yeah. So I guess this leads into this other question that I had. I had a follow-up to what you said, but I don't know what it was because my protectors were protecting it, but how can we, or how can I see food and engage with food in a way that it's not like an obligation or an annoyance or like something to check off. And it really be something that I can find nourishment through. Yeah. 
So if a person is experiencing food as an annoyance, as something they need to check off, as something that's like a chore that they need to do mm-hmm. in that day, I would get, again, same, same technique, get curious, like what, what's coming up for me? And there'd probably be some form of clenching, there'll be some form of impatience, there'll be some form of irritation. And I would just start grounding, place your feet on the floor, breathe, slow down your exhales, like blow out as if you're blowing through a straw, like whistling almost or humming, so that you can really lengthen your exhales so that they're really slow and consistent for a good 10 to 20 seconds for some time while you hold that food and notice your feet on the floor or your back against a chair or however it is, like really ground yourself in your body. Notice wherever you feel tension in your body, any muscle tension or anything, and just invite it to relax whilst you exhale. And just notice what happens. If there's trapped emotion, it may just come up. You may just start crying. I have no idea why. (laughs) Who knows? Mm -hmm. That's just one way of dealing with it. There are so many different techniques. Another one might be, you know, recognizing what you feel towards this food. Let's say holding it in your hand, noticing if you feel maybe nauseous or annoyed or irritated. Recognize again in your body where you feel that frustration. And just acknowledging, I release and forgive myself for feeling this way. I know that whatever part of my body is feeling this way, it must have good, a good reason and good intention. And maybe one day it will feel safe enough to share that with me. Maybe even now if I ask it, but maybe not. And that's okay and I'm enough. You know, so that's another way of going about it. Another way is to ask yourself the question, if I eat this food, if I engage with this food, if I smell this food and, and slowly enjoy and engage with this food with pleasure, what does that mean about me? What are the subconscious messages I got in my life? A lot of times eating disorders are just the shame of existence. It means I'm taking up space. It means I matter. If I'm going to feed myself. I'm not going to be invisible anymore. So what does it mean to exist? What am I ashamed of? And you just open up the door to a long road of healing there, you know? Mm-hmm. But it's just a starting point just to, just to get started conversation starter and then get to know the protectors they're also parts of you that need that need connection and they need acknowledgement thank them always show gratitude to the protectors always show gratitude to the protectors yeah and then sometimes you can ask them do you mind just stepping aside for a moment so that i can just see what's what you're protecting me from just so that i can have a look if you want to come with me you're welcome (laughs) but like you can work with it together but again sometimes this work is so big you definitely need support to do this work if it's big for you you need a therapist you need to you know go through some kind of get some kind of support to work through all the stuff underneath the surface and to work through all the fear and and the relationship stuff that's really important do you find that fear is this the biggest piece of this or not necessarily yeah because there's really two modes that a person can respond to the world from two two like modes of functioning we've got the mm-hmm. pipeline freeze mode of functioning and then the full full functioning which we would call rest and restore or relaxed joyfulness and basically it's the flight flight and freeze mode or you call that like the um, sympathetic nervous system mode is basically the emergency button. And when we go into emergency mode, our whole biology changes. It's not just 
It's not just a thought in our mind that I feel defensive. My whole biology has just changed. What that means is that there are whole organs and sets of systems in my body that shut down. My hormonal structure shifts and changes. I have different hormones going on in my body. Parts of my liver shut down, my digestive system. Part of my brain, my prefrontal cortex shuts down. Literally, my whole body goes into like 50% capacity on some areas and like 100% capacity on others. So my energy is now shifted to focus all its attention on my like hands and legs, whatever it takes to get me out of on my, on my heart, like to run away from the danger or to fight the danger right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually, that a lot of people who live in this mode, who live in the state of, of, of defensiveness on an intense level, so they, the consequence of that is they can have digestive issues, reproductive organ issues, like infertility issues and things like this, and have no idea that it's because they're actually living in stress mode, like all the time. Our bodies are not designed to live in stress mode all of the time. It's a little bit like, you know, the boiling kettle. You boil a kettle and that's great. Like you've got hot water now, but if that kettle keeps boiling, keeps boiling, keeps boiling, at some point there's going to end up, there's not going to be any water left in that kettle. And that something's going to snap because it's not, it's not that boiling point is not something that is, is meant to be a constant thing. It's like Mm -hmm. once in a while we turn on the kettle and then it boils and then it turns off. Right. That's what, that's what fight, flight, freeze mode is to keep us safe in real dangers. Then, but what happens is, is that because if, if we have any kind of trauma, we can stay stuck in that state for longer periods. Even when the danger's over, our brain hasn't processed that the danger's over. So we just stay stuck there and, and we just live in that state. And we see the whole world through those glasses and everything we perceive as possible dangers. And then you have the rest and restore mode, which is I can, like I said a little earlier in this conversation, my prefrontal cortex, cortex comes online, which means that I have the ability to to learn new information, to perceive things from other perspectives, to engage, to connect, to perceive the world, not from a defensive place, but from a curious open space. I have nothing I need to prove and nothing I need to protect myself from. My body is in a present, joyful, expanded space. I can laugh, I can joke, I can have fun. I can sleep, I can eat, you know, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So basically, what was your question originally? If like fear is the primary way. Yeah, the question was, is fear the primary culprit? Maybe I shouldn't say culprit. Maybe, maybe, yeah. I should, maybe I should call it a protector. Is fear mm-hmm. the primary protector that stands in the way right. of our relationship with food? Right. So basically, when I am in a fear mode, that's where I don't have perspective. That's where I'm instinctively running on my my limiting beliefs and my things about my belief systems around about the world, my stories. When I'm in rest and restore mode, when I'm in parasympathetic nervous system mode, I have my full body functioning. So then the way I relate to the world is via connection and relationship, the space for me, the space for them, the spaces, food is allowed to be here. I'm allowed to be here. I can make a choice about how I want to eat this food and what to do with this food. And when I'm in a state of fight, flight and freeze. So everything is a power struggle, everything you move from. So, so again, I, I spoke about this in the first class is that difference between harmonious relationship with food and a power struggle relationship with food, a harmonious relationship with food is full is full brain function is full body function is parasympathetic nervous system mode 
Whereas the other option is, is power struggle, which is fight, play, and freeze mode. And it's always fear-based, always fear-based. So fear is like we, whoever asked those questions hit the nail on the head about the fear. That's what we're saying. So thank you for that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that what I would say is that the issue is not a food issue. The issue is a fit issue. The issue is how do I regulate my nervous system issue? It's how do I start relating to life rather than from a place of curious openness and joyfulness and vulnerability versus control and, and fear. That's really the bottom line for all of these questions. And, and how do you put yourself in a position where you're taking the risk to not be safe necessarily because you don't know what the answers are or you don't know mm. What's on the how other side? How do yeah. you be brave enough to be vulnerable? How do you be brave enough to be vulnerable? That is a great question. That is a great question. I'm really glad you brought it up because it's really important. We have to start to build body resources and support for our, for our senses, to things to soothe our senses. And, and that looks different for different people. So learning regulation techniques for one person, it might mean internalizing uh make up a mother the ideal mother the most beautiful wonderful kind loving mother you could possibly imagine and imagine she lives with inside inside of you in your head and every time you feel vulnerable you can go and sit on her lap and she can hug you that's one like one idea like some people do that with animals some people do that with god some people do that with the, the sea the beach it doesn't matter but it's it's a process of creating an internal safe attachment some people do this with their therapist as well one of the ways you know when you're done with therapy is that you have the therapist's voice inside your head so you can imagine that you're saying something to your therapist and you know exactly what they're going to respond because now you've internalized that voice so you start to create an internal voice an internal persona or internal part of yourself that is able to hold and soothe and regulate you so that when you take a risk there is a containment of some sort. So let's say you ask someone, let's say, let's say your story is around rejection. Nobody likes me. You're taking risks now to see if that's true. So you might call up a friend and ask her if she wants to go to coffee with you. And she might say, no, I'm so sorry, I'm busy. Maybe we'll go out tomorrow. And your brain goes straight to, you see, no one likes me. So she's just, just making excuses. She's just trying to get away from me. Really, I'm an annoying person and nobody wants to be my friend. And if I had an internal body resource, let's say I had an internal mother, and I would just imagine that little part of myself that feels that fear of like, <gasps> to just for her to come over and pick up her child and just hold her and hug her and to say, you know, I think you're a wonderful person and anyone would be lucky to be friends with you. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you can have many long dialogues and sometimes there's little parts of ourselves don't want to hear you're a wonderful person, you know, and it gets complicated. So I'm not going to walk you through this here because it's individual for every person but that's just an idea that's one form of internal body resource another form might be literally and also pep talks don't work for everyone what i'm describing it's internal attachment which means you would be like looking into the eyes of something inside of you like closing your eyes and imagining that you're making eye contact physical touch it's it's much more it's a much slower process it's not just a thought in your head of saying yeah okay, I'm good. You know, that, that doesn't work usually at all. And it's real deep connection between two parts of yourself, one that feels really vulnerable and one that is open, compassionate and loving. It's a slightly different, more, what's the word? 
it's a more subtle connected process it's called body resourcing it's just one one form of doing it. another way would be literally just anchoring yourself in reality by touching things that are soft and comforting smelling things that are so that smell good to you like finding everyone should really have a toolbox of like two or three things that are their body resources and once you have those you can just use those again and again but everybody is is finds different has different strengths and different senses in their body some people it's sight that really helps them some people sound some people taste touch some people it's a sense of space so like to close their eyes and imagine they're surrounded by something or sometimes it might be imagination for some people it's also a sense so there's like it's basically just a matter of finding something that speaks to your senses that suits you and that gives you a sense of groundedness to the point where you come back online, you come back out of trigger into prefrontal cortex function, and you can logically think about what just happened and you can put it into a context. Breathing is really important for this, but really acknowledging, recognizing, getting used to understanding, like, what does it feel like when my body goes into trigger? What does it feel like when my body comes out? How do I get my body from A to B? And to notice when I'm triggered and to, to do that as primary number one, and then you'll have perspective and you'll know how to think about it and how to progress and what to do. So if a person, for example, is afraid of vulnerability because they are afraid and they don't know what to do with feelings of shame. So they don't want to risk being vulnerable because they're just so afraid of like the consequences, like, oh my gosh, like if I feel shame, I don't know how to deal with my shame. So I would say like learning, learning regulation techniques, learning how to notice where you feel the shame in your body, breathe through it find you know those body resources that help you feel like um what's the word soothed i find that for me the internal attachment is really important so what i would do is i would get my my internal attachment figure to come and sit down next to the shame and listen i wouldn't say anything first i would just listen and it might say like i feel like such an idiot i don't know why i did that and i would just listen and say yeah i know like yeah you know feels rubbish i get it and like, you really just wanted X, Y, and Z. And like, that's what happened. It wasn't your intention. What did you want? And I would just kind of talk it through to get to the point where I just really wanted this, or I just really wanted that. And I would say, well, then, okay, makes sense. So how do you think we can get back? How can I support you with that in a way that feels comfortable for you? And just kind of work it out like that, you know? But again, it depends on the circumstance. I mean, we can go down so many roads here <laughs> discussing yeah. so many things. It's a massive topic. Yeah. Um, well, that's but... really helpful. Just that idea that there is that internal anchor. Mm. Yeah, that you need you to can create. Yeah, body resources, they're called. Like, then you can look that up on like Google, and there's like a lot of information about body resourcing out there. And that's what helps to have shame resilience or like any risk resilience, vulnerability Mm -hmm. resilient, like the ability to be resilient when you bounce back. The more more resources you have to ground and and regulate yourself, the the less afraid you will be of taking those risks. Mm -hmm. So when I was practicing this work for a really long time Mm -hmm. before I had this, this dream, it was a very interesting dream because in my dream, it was it was a nightmare. It was one of those dreams where actually I woke up in the middle of the night and there was someone knocking at my door and I like went to open the door and there was somebody standing there holding a gun at me. Mm. And my bedroom door opened up into like a warehouse. And 
there was a lot of people wearing hoods and holding guns at me. It was one of those dreams that you would usually just wake up going, <gasps> you know, like this terrified, like, like, like fear. And I was so used to at this point responding to my fear with curiosity. So in my dream, I did that. I was like, oh, interesting. And I was looking at their guns and I was just like getting, I was just, it was just an interesting dream because I wasn't feeling all that panic. And then I just started to dance in my dream. I, just, I don't know. I started to dance and then music started playing in the background. Wow. You know how dreams just, and, and then yeah, everyone put evolved. their guns down. Everyone put their guns down and started walking away from me. And I was like, hey, where are you going? And I like tried to talk to these gun people and they just blanked me and walked off. Wow. And it was just, such a, and then I just started laughing in my dream. And then it was just like such a funny dream because it was like really, it really showed me like when I woke up in the morning, I was like, wow, this work is really deep. Like it even mm -hmm. like sifts into your subconscious to the point where you just stop feeling fear about facing stuff. There's nothing to fear, but fear itself really. Mm -hmm. And of course mm -hmm. there's still fear of facing things and new things come up all the time with new intensity. And it like always, I'm, of course I'm like still triggered and afraid of stuff. I mean, I'm absolutely human on all levels, but there is definitely a part of me that would have been terrified by this kind of experience and is no longer terrified and just sees every experience as just an opportunity of like getting to know, like figure something out, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like mm -hmm. a shift in the brain. And when you get to that point, then life just becomes a really fun journey of exploring rather than like, oh my gosh, terrifying. Like what might I find out about myself that I don't want to know? I think I saw this on TikTok. Um, this girl's like, before she does anything, she's like, show me how good it gets or show me how good it could get instead of like approaching it with fear which I thought was like a really cute mantra that's another whole thing I mean we're so afraid of feeling expanded vulnerability yeah. is just as scary for us as, as fear you know like it's a bit like if you if you if you're in a dark room and someone turns the light on you just can't open your eyes straight away it's like you just type them you know close them tight and then in order to be able to see in the light you have to just open your eyes a tiny amount and then close them again open them a tiny bit more close them again until you adjust to the light. Mm -hmm. And it's a bit like that also with learning how to receive and be expanded and joyful. It can feel so vulnerable and we can feel so vulnerable and open and that's a huge trigger for people because it feels like we said, can feel unsafe. So basically we'll more than likely prefer to live in a straight jacket and we're yes. in a restricted state than to be in an expanded joyful state. And it's just a matter of exposure slowly, slowly, slowly in your window of tolerance until you're able to tolerate it and like get yourself used to it. It's, it's also like, you know, same thing, a baby's born and it wants to be swaddled because it's just used to being tight and, and you know, in a constricted state. But after a while, we let out its hands and then, you know, slowly it just starts to enjoy space, like space is good. So is light. But if it's a sudden shift and we, we haven't, you know, we haven't done it in a, in a slow stretch, if it can go from one extreme to the other and then just we snap back you know mm -hmm. so it's really a question of being doing it slowly slower is faster kind in a kind way and acknowledging that we're not all all just willing to walk into the light no it's it's hard work to do that as in it's a stretch it's definitely yeah. a stretch to receive to receive goodness to allow ourselves to receive when someone offers help to allow ourselves to receive love and connection to allow ourselves to receive fun and abundance and 
I'm a little bit torn about the next question mm -hmm. because I would like to talk more about worthiness and how that plays into this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to combine it with the other question that I have that a lot of us struggle with, because especially in the Jewish community, we're all children of survivors. Mm. And most of our grandparents have survived war and literally didn't know where or when their next piece of their next meal was going to come from at certain times or depending on where they were from, like how, or what their life story was, how intense that was. But in general, being raised with these ideas of not throwing away food because whatever, like having to finish all the food on our plate or all, a lot of these things that children of survivors deal with. And I'm wondering if you want to, if you can speak to that. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you can, but. <laughs> yeah, so we've all inherited trauma, regardless of whether it was because we ourselves in a past lifetime were in that war too, or it's because we were in our grandmother's wombs. I don't know if you know this, but like every baby girl is born with all of her eggs already. So, mm -hmm. right. So you were literally developed in your grandmother's womb. And what that means is that you are inheriting all of her genetics, which and trauma impacts the genes yes and then we pass that down in our in through generations so basically what we're doing is every time we are healing a little bit of our trauma it's not only our trauma it's our grandparents trauma every time we sit and we ask this question about like why do I feel I have to eat every single thing on my plate if there is people starving in, in Africa is that actually going to help them what can I actually do to help them and to start to break down that limiting belief that like you know, that kind of survivor's guilt and to start to get curious. Why am I holding on to this? And is this really actually helpful? What is the point of this belief? Does this actually help the world become a more connected, loving place? Or is this a fear-based response to something? Is it something I want to continue to live with my whole life, like as a parrot? Or do I actually want to choose how I want to believe about these things? To do a process of healing the trauma that we've all inherited and everybody is a slightly different version of that. And um, like that, we're not, only, we're not only healing our own trauma, we're healing their trauma of past, past generations, we're healing future generations, we're also healing the whole generation. The Bashams have taught that every time you do uh, some form of tikkun or integration of some form of fear, that you're not only doing it for yourself, you're doing it for the entire generation, you're doing it for your future, and or children and generations and also for your past and so you're paving the path to make this work easier for other people as well so whenever we do any kind of inner work this is amazing this idea that I'm not just not just me struggling in my own head and doing my own things I'm shifting the whole entire energy of the universe I'm literally shifting the consciousness of the universe by doing my little trauma processing in my own heart and mind and I'm helping everybody else to shift theirs and slowly what we see is that when enough people are doing this work, so the general energy in the universe can be felt as a shift. And we've been doing this from the beginning and we've made shift after shift after shift and this final shift, which is shifting into Ka'ula consciousness, shifting into um, redemption consciousness where we are expanded 
in all senses and authentically aligned with our true value and true worth and true self. We're just um, finishing the work. And it's such a gift to be able to engage in this work. And it's also really validating Mm. knowing that like, obviously it's so hard. Look how much, like, look how much we're up against. Look how much we're working through. Mm -hmm. Look how much we're carrying. It's amazing that like our backs aren't snapped in half and our hearts are still pumping because it's so much. And can we hold space for that being so much and be like, wow, you're doing it. Thank you. We are doing it. And we don't only inherit the trauma. We need to remember that we also inherit the strengths. This is really valuable. We don't only inherit the trauma, we inherit the strengths. And so we inherit years and years of other people's work that they've done on themselves. And to get to this point where we can do this work, we're on the shoulders of of generations and generations of courageous people who have done this work before us. Yeah. And it's we are a link in the chain. We're we're continuing that's great. Really powerful. Yeah. This is like such a great way to end. So any any closing remarks or is that your closing remark? There's so much joy that can be felt in this world. It's such a wonderful, I don't even know how to say it. The world needs to hear. So let's see if we can articulate this. It's a very delicate thing to say because somebody who is in a state of their amygdala is totally hijacked, their whole nervous system. They're in a state of living with trauma like 24 seven. And I tell them, I would say to them, there's so much joy to be had in this world. This can be a huge trigger. Yes. No, they can't. And I've met many people who, amazing people, wonderful people who by no fault at all of them, and it's never anyone's fault ever if they're experiencing pain, live a life of excruciating pain day in and day out and day in and day out. And however much trauma work they are doing and working on themselves, there are certain circumstances in their life that are out of their control. And I don't want to in any way brush that aside. The reality Mm -hmm. is that a lot of people do live in excruciating pain. And I also just know from my own experience at times and moments where I have been in that kind of intensity of pain myself, that when I learned how to connect with myself and have compassion for myself in that space, I was also able to feel joy at the same time in a weird kind of way. The connection and depth and focus, I think pain always gave me a very strong sense of focus because you can't really do anything else when you're feeling pain other than be present with it because it just always keeps bringing you back to the present. I'm like, oh, ow, ow. And there's a gift in that. There is also a tremendous amount of joy to be had in in just becoming present and connected with the reality, whatever it is. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's not, depending on the person, depending on the situation. But I think that a lot of times we think that joy is outside of ourselves. Like I have to find it somewhere else. I have to fix something external and then I can be feel happy. Joy is a state of a regulated nervous system. It's not an emotion. It's just a state of regulation. And so really I can regulate within my grief I can regulate within my pain I can feel Mm -hmm. it in an open-hearted vulnerable way or in a fear-based closed shut constricted space which feels isolated and alone and that compounds the pain by so much more so much more it's a bit like giving birth I think I learned this I think it was my third child when I was giving birth I studied hypnobirthing my Mm -hmm. first two births whenever I had a contraction I just clenched 
my teeth and held my breath and waited for the pain to be over and then waited for the next pain to come and did the same thing. And with hypnobirthing, what I learned how to do was that with every contraction to relax deeper and to open more and to breathe deeper and slow and to keep breathing specifically even more focusing on my breath during the contractions, not in between. And what I found is that the, the difference between, I can't even compare between my first two births and my subsequent births, that the, the pain level was significantly reduced and the, the, the appreciation for the experience of birth and the, the appreciation for the intensity and the feeling of being able to actually experience more than just the pain, being able to be present with such an intense experience rather than from fear and just get me out of here, get this over with, there was an opportunity to think and to experience what's actually happening here, which made the experience so much more meaningful and so much more enjoyable, Mm -hmm. even though I would still say it's excruciatingly painful to give birth. I don't think I would (laughs) would, uh, move from that, especially if you're doing it naturally. But there's a massive difference between the type and the quality of the pain when there is tension and fear versus relaxation and presence and intentional breath and connection with body so what am i saying is that whatever journey anyone's anyone who's listening to this whatever journey you're on everyone's on their own journey and especially if you're listening to this i'm imagining you're interested in the idea of healing one's relationship with food that it's not a question of trying to get away from struggling with my relationship with food it's not like i need to fix myself or get away from my pain or my pain is a problem. It's actually just a matter of, instead of trying to get out and change something, it's just a matter of sinking deeper within myself, sinking deeper in my roots, falling back into my body, sitting into my back and my spine rather than the front of my body, like almost running away, like sinking back deeper into myself, connecting back deeper with myself, recognizing that like right here in this moment, regardless of what I'm feeling, whether it's pain, whether it's trauma, whether I'm triggered, I can connect to myself now. I can regulate myself now. I can experience joy now in this moment. There's nowhere else I need to go. There's nothing else I have to do. I don't need to fix anything. All I can do is use this as an opportunity for connection with myself, with God, with others. I can choose to be loving. I can't choose to be loved. Where are my choices? What is it like to be in a vulnerable open state to receive whatever is around me receiving the beauty of that moment and that is the key it's right now right now you're already healed you're Mm -hmm. already healed there's nothing you have to do to heal yourself you are already healed if you just tap into the place in your body that knows it's already healed you'll realize you were healed all along it's just a matter of falling back into and experiencing that wow you're already there there's nowhere else you need to go, nothing else you need to do. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. And for this incredible conversation. Thanks for being brave enough. We don't know who's going to listen. We don't know how it's going to impact anyone or anything, but we know that these are really valuable tools and so important to be put out into the world. So thanks for doing this with me. You're welcome.